Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today I am so excited that we have Jan Wolf with us. He is a D.C.-based business legal affairs correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. He covers significant legal disputes that may be a bit of an understatement in federal courts in Washington and all around the country as well as a court you may have heard of, the Supreme Court. Jan graduated from Boston College and Boston College Law School. He is trained as an attorney. He joined the Wall Street Journal from Reuters, and he covered many legal challenges to former President Donald Trump's policies and practices. Welcome, Jan. Thank you for passing judgment with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, It's hard to pick what's the biggest legal news, but I would love to start with all things Mar-a-Lago. And I know you've been following this. For our listeners at home, I think everybody knows that the FBI executed a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. It probably feels like a decade ago. It was actually really just a few weeks ago. And the FBI had probable cause to believe that there were three different federal criminal statutes that potentially were violated, that there was evidence of criminal activity at Mar-a-Lago. They, of course, went in, they found thousands of documents, some of them classified. The former president has tried to fight this in court, outside of court. We'll fast forward a little bit. Uh, Trump asked for something called a special master to review some of the documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago. Jan, can you help us pick up at this part of the story? I want to get us all the way to what the 11th Circuit said and what Judge Deary said this week, but can you help us start with why did the former president ask for a special master and what was that special master supposed to do? Yeah, so let's start from, you know, a few weeks ago. So it was Trump that asked for a special master. It was two weeks after the search of Mar-a-Lago. And a special master, I mean, this isn't totally unprecedented, right? Like we saw this with um, the search of Michael Cohen's office, the search of Giuliani's office. A special master gets appointed. It's like an independent lawyer who reports to the judge. And it's used to kind of create this appearance of due process and fairness because it's typically someone who is respected by both sides and goes through evidence that's been seized and just makes sure that prosecutors aren't seeing things that they shouldn't see, typically attorney-client privilege communications. So, you know, a lot of people had this idea, like maybe Trump will ask for a special master. Some people were actually surprised he didn't do it the next day. He waited two weeks. He moved for one, uh, and that request was, um, you know, assigned to Judge Eileen Cannon, a federal judge in South Florida, and uh, she ended up agreeing. And I think a lot of people were alarmed by that because they thought that DOJ has its own sufficient processes for having, you know, one team look at stuff and one team investigate, and that was sufficient, and a special master would just slow down an urgent investigation pertaining to national security. So people were upset about it, and they were upset because she had effectively halted the investigation while the special master review was ongoing. And, of course, other people said, no, this is good because in the long run, it's going to give critics of law enforcement, Trump supporters, you know, a bit more reason to think that this is being done fairly. So basically, special masters are, as you explain it, and as I understand it, 
typically retired judges, sometimes outside independent attorneys who are not retired judges, and they assist the court in doing something, oftentimes reviewing documents for attorney-client privilege. And a special master is used instead of a Department of Justice taint team, where there's part of the Department of Justice that just looks at that issue of attorney-client privilege, and then they filter out those documents so the investigation team doesn't look at it. Now, in this case, the special master was requested to look at attorney-client privilege, but also executive privilege. And so I want to ask you first, what's the basis, as you would explain it, of the executive privilege claim here? And then I want to ask you, how do we get to Judge Cannon? Because she's not the judge who signed the search warrant. Right. So a special master typically looks for attorney-client privilege communications. That's kind of a time-tested thing. Having a special master look for executive privilege communications is a whole different beast. And executive privilege is a sort of squishy concept. There's not a lot of court decisions interpreting it. I mean, it's been recognized and the idea is that certain White House communications should stay secret because that way a president can get the most candid, frank advice possible from advisors, and that's a good thing. So that's the part that is still a bit murky, and it's going to be a difficult task for Judge Deary, the special master, to make those judgment calls. His judgment calls are really just recommendations to Judge Cannon. Judge Cannon got this request from Trump for a special master because he filed as a its own case. We had a different judge, Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt in Florida, who approved the search warrant. Judge Cannon ended up getting Trump's request for a special master because he filed it just as sort of an independent cause of action, even though really it was just a motion. That starts getting a bit granular, but that actually could come down the road to be relevant to who decides any requests by Trump to have property returned to him because the special master is saying, well, maybe that should be Judge Reinhardt who approved the search warrant. And Trump has already said, no, we think it should be Judge Cannon, who has been more sympathetic to his side. So that's something that we're probably going to see become an issue in like a month or two. And that's actually, as you said, it's granular, but it's a big issue. So we have the former president who um, I know you need to stay neutral in your reporting. I will characterize this as judge shopping, that he moved from magistrate Judge Reinhardt, who had approved the search warrant, who I believe was appointed by President Obama. And he, in my mind, tried to get a more favorable judge. And that's why he styled this request for a special master as basically a new motion and was able to get Judge Cannon, who he nominated and ultimately she was confirmed after he lost the election. Again, I'll also put just my opinion on it. I know as a journalist, you stay neutral, which is that there is simply no legal basis for asking for a special master when it comes to executive privilege. Executive privilege, as you laid out so clearly, it's in part to allow the chief executive to have conversations with his advisors and to do so in a way where you know those communications can't be accessed by other branches in some circumstances. It's never been used by a former president against an executive branch agency, which the Department of Justice is. And it's never been used when the current president waives executive privilege. And it's never been used when there's an ongoing criminal investigation, which we know is one of the places where executive privilege is limited. And Jan, I thought you did such a good job of highlighting, because there are basically two judges here, then if property is ultimately returned to the former president, 
it's not clear who has the final say. And I think it's really important that you flag this issue coming forward. Now, could I ask you to highlight former President Trump goes to Judge Cannon. She says, yes, you get a special master. Could you give us a little bit more details about what she said in that initial ruling? So she said a special master would help generate public trust in this investigation. And that's often the justification for a special master. You know, it's this respected independent lawyer and Typically, like you mentioned, what DOJ does is they have what's called a filter team, which is like a team of investigators and lawyers that won't end up prosecuting a potential case, do the initial review for like privileged communications. And uh, she seemed to think, you know, it'll create more public trust if we don't do that typical process. The criticism of that was it sure seems like Donald Trump is getting special treatment that most people wouldn't get. And Trump's argument for a special master was also well, it feels like we have to take DOJ's word for things. Like they're saying that there's 100 confidential documents, but let's get another set of eyes on that. You know, they're saying like, oh, there's not a lot of privileged communications here. Let's get a second set of eyes on that. And Judge Cannon was was sympathetic to that argument. And I know that there were then a couple of motions that were filed after Judge Cannon's ruling. Was the first motion that was filed by the DOJ basically saying to her, could you please reconsider what you just said? We think you were wrong. And I know it wasn't a full motion for reconsideration. It was just on part of her ruling. What was the DOJ's first tack here? What was the first thing that they basically argued? Yeah, DOJ's appellate strategy has been interesting and it's paid off because what they did is they didn't challenge the special master appointment as a whole which is what we thought they might do at first since they had opposed a special master. Instead, they said, we need to focus on these 100 or so documents that bear classification markings that, you know, that are marked as classified. Those are the most important to our investigation and everything else is secondary. So how about this? We'll ask first Judge Cannon, will you just carve those out from the special master process? Let us have them back and we can resume our investigation as to those. Because she had effectively halted their investigation. And they said, these are the most important ones. We will want to look at them now. And she declined to grant that relief, which was fashioned as a partial stay of her earlier ruling. And so DOJ went to the 11th Circuit which, you know, has six Trump appointees on it, I believe. You know, don't hold me to that. But they got a panel of three judges to unanimously say that Judge Cannon had mishandled that. And that panel included two Trump appointees, which is kind of interesting because you sometimes hear this talking point that, oh, Trump judges, you know, they do his bidding. And that's not actually true. And this is an example of they're not all the same, right? I mean, so in any event, the 11th Circuit this week, this was big news. They said that DOJ is right, that those 100 or so classified documents, they don't need to go through a special master process. One aspect of the ruling was that these documents are inherently government property. Like even if right. Trump had somehow declassified them, that doesn't convert them into his personal property. You know, they bear all the hallmarks at this point of being classified. So what the court said was, you know, let's carve those out from the special master process because there's not really any way we could see why Trump would have a right to getting them returned to him anyway. 
I think that's such a good summary. And I know for people, hopefully this doesn't sound too in the weeds, but I think people keep reading every day new special master news. And you laid it out really carefully, which is the Department of Justice has this interesting appellate strategy, which I think has really paid off. They decided to go narrow. They first asked Judge Cannon to reconsider. She basically said no. The case then goes to a three-judge panel on the 11th Circuit. There are two Trump appointees on the panel, which I totally agree with you is important to highlight. We can't view federal judges as a monolith where all that matters is who appoints them. And they said, yes, Department of Justice, you get to keep using the classified documents, and those don't go to a special master because there can be basically no possessory interest. That's how I read it. This is my gloss now. There can be no possessory interest by the former president. And I really read it as largely a smackdown of Judge Cannon's ruling here. And you mentioned, Jan, this issue of declassification, classification. I think this is also a place that maybe has been confusing for listeners. And I think that brings us into another related courtroom, which is Judge Deary's courtroom. So we've been talking about the litigation of, will there be a special master? And what will that special master get to see? But there was actually a first hearing this week in Judge Deary's courtroom. I know you covered it, could you tell us a little bit about what happened in that courtroom? Yeah. Well, I didn't go. It was in Brooklyn where Judge Deary still has use of the courtroom because he's a judge on senior status, you know, in the federal courthouse in downtown Brooklyn. People tried to dial in to his credit. You know, he had created yes. like a public access line, but apparently all hell broke loose and people weren't muted. It was chaotic. I couldn't even get on. I kept getting a busy signal. But I got the transcript and I read it. And I think what we know is that he's going to move as quickly as as he can. And he is not here to really do anybody's bidding. Like he is a very experienced judge, really respected. It's really hard to find anybody to say anything bad about the guy. I mean, across the political spectrum. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. I mean, some people are seeing what they say are signs that Trump should be maybe a little worried. I think it's maybe a bit too early to tell. The main thing is that Trump, the client, has in media interviews said, I declassified everything I took to Mar-a-Lago, in essence. His lawyers have not said that. They've been more circumspect when it comes to this issue of declassification. They've said a president has sweeping power to declassify stuff, sort of raising the specter of it as a potential defense at some point, a potential argument, but they haven't really fleshed it out. And Judge Deary said, well, I may need you to flesh this out soon in the form of sworn statements, affidavits, essentially, you know, just explaining was there a declassification order. Now the documents that bear classification markings have been taken out of Judge Deary's hands. The preliminary hearing was before the 11th Circuit had ruled. So, you know, we'll see if, how much it even comes up in his courtroom. But it was an interesting moment because it showed that he's going to make Trump's side back up their claims. Also to the point that I was making, and I think you've highlighted it as well in a neutral way, that Judge Deary is also a judge who was appointed by a Republican president. He was appointed by Ronald Reagan. And it does seem to me, I read the transcript, like he was very down the middle. Can you highlight for us, there's one line that people keep talking about from that hearing where he said, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You and I talked a little bit about that offline, but what was he referring to? Because in my mind, that highlights everything that happened in the hearing and his approach to the hearing. Yeah, that had to do with the declassification issue. His point was that if you're going to 
make a declassification argument, I need to know was there a declassification order? You know, what exactly did Trump say to, if anything, to declassify some of these documents? And he said that because Trump's lawyers have hinted at this issue, but they haven't gotten into the specifics. Their position is that it's too early because we don't even know the full universe of stuff taken from Mar-a-Lago, which is actually a fair point. So their position is, you know, we want to do it later. And the judge is saying, okay, but at a certain point, I need you to, like, just show me your evidence. You know, it seems like you're trying to have your cake and eat it line. So speaking of show me your evidence, I think a lot of our listeners probably heard the former president or heard reporting that the former president said on Fox this week, I can declassify something just by thinking about it. Now, I don't teach classification and declassification in class, but that's not my understanding of it. What's the typical process of declassification? It's never been my, again, understanding that it can be something that happens in your head. That makes no sense to me because declassification means different people can see those documents, different people can handle those documents. There has to be some sort of outward expression. So we know to treat those things differently. In your reporting, what's the typical process? Yeah, it's a complicated subject. There is a grain of truth to what Trump is saying. I mean, he said there's a process. There doesn't have to be a process. I would actually agree with that. The president is the ultimate declassifier, a sitting president, mind you. We need to be clear about that. This is anything he did when he was in office. And so, you know, an oral order witnessed by one person, that would, in my mind, suffice to declassify something. But as a practical matter in the intelligence community, people need to know stuff was declassified. And that's why there's a process. Because when we talk about declassifying stuff, we're declassifying subjects, bits of intelligence, not really documents. And people have to within the community, they have to know this in order to protect our national security. So that there is a process, you know, by going through federal agencies. And Trump has done this when stuff was really important to him. And he wanted to declassify, you know, materials about the FBI investigation into his campaign. He went through the formal channels. So it's pretty complicated. But to sum it up, a president, you know, has broad authority here. Maybe an oral order, you know, could suffice. He can't just think it, though. I mean, that's just a bit much I, based on what my understanding. And there's also another issue here, which is like, so let's say Trump or anyone else were charged in court with mishandling these documents, and they wanted to, in the courtroom context, say they had been declassified. A fact finder, whether it's a judge or a jury, is going to need some evidence of that. And so that's why it also kind of matters that you really should have a process, because otherwise a fact finder like a jury might just not believe that defense because they might just say, this seems like you're just making up a rationalization after the fact. Right. And I think it's important that the former president did go through an actual process when he was president and did declassify things. And it doesn't have to be a lengthy process. As you said, it can be oral that other people witness, but practically speaking, People need to understand that these documents have been declassified. And I think this probably brings us, I, you know, I could talk about Mar-a-Lago land for a lot longer, but I think what listeners will want to know is, okay, so there is a special master. The special master is reviewing the documents other than the ones that are marked as classified that the Department of Justice gets to keep using. And that also means 
my understanding is the Department of Justice investigation continues, the national security community's investigation continues. So what should people expect next? I think there will be more hearings in Judge Deary's courtroom. The Department of Justice probably is going to work in silence again. Are there any things that listeners should be looking for? I think we will see a subsiding of the constant daily court developments. I mean, it's possible Trump appeals to SCOTUS. Speaking of granular, you might have seen there was some discussion about whether he can even appeal because Judge Cannon already yes. modified her special master order. That's like a little bit above my, maybe you you understand it better than I do. But, but the, the long short of it is that some people think that by altering her order, Judge Cannon may have foreclosed an appeal because she went ahead and said, okay, DOJ can have these documents back. But in any event, there's probably some way Trump could try to appeal. But if that doesn't happen, I think what we'll see is the next couple of weeks will be the parties going through this stuff in private and coming to conclusions about, okay, this is attorney-client privilege, this is executive privilege. We won't know too much about what's going on. And then maybe in like a month, Judge Deary will start coming out with his recommendations to Judge Cannon. And that'll be interesting to see because, you know, we're talking about how executive privilege is kind of a squishy concept and not typically what a special master looks at. So we'll kind of get a sense of how does Judge Deary interpret executive privilege? Does he think it broadly protects documents? Does he think it only protects a few, none? So, you know, we'll see. But there might be a bit less courtroom action now, which would be nice, to be honest. You could use maybe a, a moment to take a breath after all of this. Again, for our listeners, we're talking to Jan Wolf of the Wall Street Journal. And this probably brings us to another topic that we're going to be hearing about more next week, which is the January 6th committee is going to hold its next, maybe last hearing uh, during the last week of September. And I would like to end the podcast by asking you first about the work of the January 6th committee and maybe what we're going to hear next week, and then talk a little bit about the Department of Justice investigations and prosecutions into January 6th. So first to the committee, do we know what to expect? Do we know where their work is? Do we know if they're going to make a recommendation? Really broad question of basically, I haven't thought about them for at least a few days. What can we expect next week? They've been a bit cryptic about what next week's hearing will be. I, I don't think it's a prime time. I think it's one o'clock Eastern. I am going to think of it as a closing argument because I think it will be the last hearing. But, you know, we've seen them play around with the timetable a lot. And, you know, that's because the evidence, you know, changes and, and new stuff comes in. So it's always been a bit vague, right? Like when exactly will the last hearing be? When will the report come out? Will there be an interim report first? And, you know, I've been so focused on Mar-a-Lago, I haven't made much of an effort to like source up on that. But, you know, we have this hearing next week. I'm going to think of it as a closing argument. And I expect they'll issue a report before the midterms because the idea has always been there's a good chance the House flips, right? Republicans right. take back the House and then they're not going to want to have the committee keep going. So they have a limited timetable. The one piece of news that I read 
regarding January 6 and the committee, other than the fact that the hearing will be next week, is that Ginny Thomas will sit for an interview. Ginny Thomas, of course, being a conservative political activist, in addition to the wife of sitting Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Could you remind us for a moment, what does the committee hope to hear from her? Is it about the plot to send fake electors to the Electoral College? Is it the planning of the I'm going to characterize this as the insurrection at the Capitol. Is it all of the above? Do we know what they want to hear? The committee has always looked at the events of January 6th, but also the lead up to it. And part of their ambit is to make legislative recommendations. And so they've always been curious about that kind of period in December when Trump was challenging the results. And Ginny Thomas played a role there based on public reporting. You know, she was emailing with you know, John Eastman, a Trump lawyer. So, you know, she's a fact witness in the sense that, you know, she was part of these discussions about what is our power to bring court cases, to submit alternate slates of of electors to the Electoral College. And so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting she's going to be interviewed because I think there was a lot of back and forth about that. I think there was some hesitation about how much to push for her testimony. But it is happening. They seem to, you know, I think they must have hammered out an agreement. And I don't have much to offer beyond that. But yeah, I mean, she's, you know, a really high profile witness, obviously, just because of who she is and who she's married to. Right. And, you know, there's a reason that she splashes across the headlines. Not everybody who's willing to sit for an interview with the January 6th committee gets a news alert. And I think she was worthy of one for all the reasons that we just talked about. Let's move out of the committee. And as promised, talk a little bit about the Department of Justice's investigation into the events of January 6th. This, of course, is separate and apart from the Department of Justice investigation that we started with into the what I would view as improper handling and retaining of documents at Mar-a-Lago. Could you update us a bit on some of the prosecutions that are ongoing, some of the more high-profile prosecutions, not involving the former president himself or his allies, but some of, for instance, the Oath Keepers, the people who are actually in the Capitol on that day. So to quickly sum up, you know, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of cases against the people who were sort of on the ground that day, like the people who physically breached the Capitol or or were outside it. And, uh, you know, a big case that is beginning next week with uh, jury selection is the Oath Keeper seditious conspiracy case. It's not all of the defendants, but it's like five of them, including the founder, Stuart Rhodes. And what's interesting about that is that seditious conspiracy is just a really rarely charged crime. And so it's kind of actually a challenging crime to prosecute because you have to show that there wasn't just mere talk. Like, you know, so much talk is protected by the First Amendment. And so you have to show that people crossed into a conspiracy to interfere with, you know, the functioning of the government using force. And so, you know, it's just something you don't see that often. So that's interesting. You know, we're seeing other cases moving along toward trial. I mean, it's just created a huge backlog of cases here in federal court in D.C. But really what's more interesting is is the DOJ investigation into Trump world, right? Like their their role in January 6th. And, you know, we've seen uh, dozens of subpoenas go out uh, through a grand jury, I believe. Some high-profile Trump advisors like, you know, Stephen Miller, Boris Epstein, they've gotten subpoenas. So that's a huge unknown. And I've been so focused on Mar-a-Lago that, 
you know, that's almost taken a back seat for me. But there's been people doing some really great reporting on that and how that probe has really escalated too. Some of that might just be public pressure, like, well, I don't know. I don't want to speculate about DOJ's motives, but what, there's a feedback loop here between the committee and DOJ, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the committee's, committee's yeah. breaking some ground, and so that creates some pressure on DOJ to investigate as well. Right. It does seem like there's a political room, obviously the hearing room, there's the Department of Justice investigation room, and there does seem to be, like, as you said, it's almost like waves that intersect and meet and they have a kind of symbiotic relationship at times. And um, at times it looks like they're working in more in a parallel play situation, let's say. But I actually lied. I would love to, before we leave, get to the other big legal story involving Trump this week, which is the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, held a press conference and she said, we are filing a civil complaint against the Trump organization, the former president, three of his adult children, essentially into financial wrongdoing and uh, civil fraud, misrepresentation. I'm going to boil it down to say really grossly and exorbitantly lying about the value of his properties in order to try and obtain favorable tax treatment, favorable loans, um, favorable insurance uh, agreements. And what was interesting to me, Jan, is what could come out of that. So first, just with respect to the civil complaint, is this something where it could threaten to end the Trump, quote unquote, empire? Could this bankrupt them? As I understand it, the penalties are severe in the sense that they could really interfere with Trump's ability to do business. You know, it's a civil case, right? So, you know, we're not talking about potential prison sentences, but the relief that the AG is seeking is to basically make it so that the Trump organization and Trump and his kids, you know, they can't do business for like a period of years if she proves their case. And so it has major implications for Trump's real estate empire and I was looking at at this I, in a way. It's actually, and it's somewhat counterintuitive because it's a civil case. It poses more of a risk than the criminal case against the Trump Organization brought by the Manhattan DA, uh, which is yes. actually going to trial next month. Because, as I understand it, uh, in that case, we're talking about potential financial penalties, but they're like back taxes, maybe times two. Right? It's like that's a case about, as I understand it, fringe benefits you know, how certain payments were made to employees. So even though that's a criminal case, it just seems to me that that doesn't actually pose the same risks for Trump as this new civil case. So, of course, what we need to also watch for, and I know you may be reporting later on the fact that the New York Attorney General made referrals to the Southern District of New York and to the criminal division of the IRS. So we're going to have to see if the federal government decides to pick up on any of the more than crumbs that Letitia James has uncovered over the last three years, and whether or not the former president could face potential legal exposure in those areas as well. Jan Wolf of the Wall Street Journal, I kept you a lot longer than I asked you for. You provided us with so much information. I always follow your reporting to stay up to date. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, good talking to you. 
For our listeners, I want to remind you that you can read Jan's reporting at the Wall Street Journal, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Jan N. Wolf. That's Jan, J-A-N, the letter N, and then W-O-L-F-E. You can follow me across social media at Levinson Jessica. We love having these conversations with you. This is a legal roundup that I've been wanting to do for a long time with Jan. I'm really grateful for his time. I hope this helped you put all of this various legal news in context, and we will be doing many additional episodes. We wish all of our listeners a great day. Mm-hmm.